to be honest no one from my country willingly or happily they want to go to gulf countries to work and earn there are problems and a lack of opportunities that force us to go to work in those countries that's dependra in 2008 he was promised a decent salary as a clerk in qatar He decided to leave Nepal, his country, because he needed the money to look after his family. I felt that I was trapped. I was a modern-day slave, you know, because we don't have any other option. We have to feed our family. We were forced to uh, sleep on the rooftop in the scorching heat, which was surrounded by cement factories. And when we wake up in the morning, we were like taking bath in the sand or cement dust. everyone was scared you know to talk to the manager because uh, their passport was with the manager and uh, they didn't knew about the local language and so i said that when there is no electricity we don't have water to take shower we are not getting a good sleep so it was like very tough situation This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical human rights and social justice issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action, and together, to help create a better world. Giri grew up in a small village in Nepal. He was the son of a farmer and the eldest of four siblings. In college, he decided to major in English. At the same time, he worked as a teacher at a primary school. So when I first got the job, it was like a joy that I just got something that no one have achieved because my salary was then $50 a month. In my culture, in my community, in my village, being the elder son i was like emotionally pressurized from the family that i had to marry then after that i have to look after my wife and her expenses as well and so things got a bit stressed from my side and so i decided to do some extra income on top of his job at the primary school dipendra started doing home tutoring and teaching computer classes he was also looking after his parents and paying for his brother's education After Dipendra's daughter was born, he was once more struggling to make ends meet. Around this time, Dipendra found a job advertisement in the local newspaper. The position was a clerk in Qatar. The pay was $330 a month, a lot more than what he was currently earning. Dipendra traveled over 10 hours to Kathmandu, Nepal's capital, to apply for the job. After he got it, he was told that he needed to pay various fees, like his visa application and the plane ticket. In order to do so, Dipendra had to take out a loan, but he thought it was worth it. I started calculating that I will pay all the debts that I have on my head while traveling to Qatar, and then uh, in six months' time, I will clear all my dues. And after that, I will do this. I will buy a piece of land. I will do that. So I was uh, super excited at that time. When you just search Google about Qatar, 
the photos that will show in the beginning is of the downtown. And I was then more excited, you know, when seeing the fancy buildings and the lights and all these things. So I was super excited that, oh, from the village, I'm going to such a fancy country. And in that way, I can secure my life. And later on, I can just bring my wife and daughter to that country. But Dipendra faced a reality that was horribly different from what he had imagined. These are people who have never been to that region. They've seen lots of pictures about the place, so it looks very shiny and new and modern. That's Mustafa Qadri. He's the executive director of Equidem, a human and labor rights investigations charity. They're offered what will seem like very attractive conditions, pay, type of work, working in the Gulf. So they're already thinking about the prestige attached to them working there. And they're told they'll earn a certain amount of money. But of course, the first step is you must pay us some money to get that job and give us your passport. So the worker will give the person who wants to be a prospective worker will hand over their passport. And of course, they're told to pay often thousands of US dollars worth of money to get that job. Now, typically, they don't have that money. So they have to go to a loan shark to get that money. And the reason why they do that is they don't have a bank account. They don't have a very good credit history. So they have to use the informal loan mechanisms. And so already they're in a situation of debt bondage. What does that mean? It means that they have taken a loan, typically at very high interest, to get that cash, to get that job. And now they have to get a job because they have to pay off that loan, even if the offer given to them by that recruiter falls through. Already they're in a situation where they're quite desperate. When Dependra borrowed money for his job-related expenses, he was charged an exorbitant interest of 60%. Not really aware of the repercussions, he was ready to leave for Qatar. How did it feel to have to leave, to make a decision to leave your daughter and your wife to take this position? Well, those were the toughest times, you know. At that time, my daughter was just a month. She was a month. It was very hard for me to leave my family and a newly born baby back home. You can just think about that, how hard it is. When Dependra arrived in Qatar, he was met by a driver at the airport who immediately asked for his passport. He was then taken to an accommodation where there wasn't any drinking water or water to take a shower. The next day, they told Dependra that instead of working as a clerk, he was going to work in construction. Despite his complaints, he had no choice but to follow their orders. When he called his family and they asked how everything was, he pretended that everything was okay because he didn't want to worry them. And at that point, when they told you that you were here to do all types of other work, at some point, did you want to leave? Well, uh, uh, to be honest, if I had the passport and the money, I would have left the country the same day in the evening. That was so horrible. Besides these obstacles, Depender was also trapped because of kafala, a system present in countries in the Gulf like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. The kafala or visa sponsorship system gives employers almost total control over migrant workers' employment and immigration status. In practice, what that means is that person legally and in cultural terms has a lot of power and influence over your life. 
That's Mustafa again. You can't physically leave the country without their permission. You can't change jobs without their permission. It's actually illegal to run away from your job. And of course, there's a very high likelihood in places like the city-states of Qatar, UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, that the person who owns your company also has relatives or friends who are government officials. So that if you try to make a complaint about your situation, if anything, they might find out about that and there'll be a reprisal on you rather than getting help. That's not always the case, but it's often the case. So that even if, for example, in Florida, in the United States, many of the same issues are faced by low-wage migrant workers, but you don't have a situation like Kafala, where the head of the police force is the brother of the person who owns your company. That, in a way, is what makes it unique. I suppose the other thing, although it is not entirely unique, is the kind of racism and stigma that you're likely to face in the Gulf. Of course, that racism, we're facing that globally, including in developed countries. But in the Gulf, there's a lot of racism towards these workers to the extent that even the zoning of cities is in many ways racially segregated, that workers from certain parts of the world, certain populations of low-wage male workers, for example, are deliberately kept far away from the main populations, sometimes literally living in the desert. And in those respects, it is quite unique and quite stark. In some countries in the Gulf, the majority of the population comprises foreign laborers. In Qatar, they represent nearly 90% of the society. The kafela system makes many of these migrant workers become victims of forced labor. Forced labor refers to a situation where people are coerced to work through the use of violence and intimidation through manipulated debt, retention of identity papers, or threats of deportation. Forced labor is observed in all types of economic activity, such as domestic work, construction, agriculture, manufacturing, sexual exploitation, or forced begging. Nearly 21 million people, that's three out of every thousand people worldwide, are victims of forced labor across the world, trapped in jobs that they were coerced and deceived into and which they cannot leave. 3% of them, an estimated 600,000 victims, are in the Middle East. I asked Mustafa to explain why forced labor is so common around the world. Firstly, at the very top of it is to think about the fact that you have people in societies that are absolutely desperate for a change of their fortune, to have more opportunities. So. When you have large populations, large population growth, a youth bulge, say in a country like Bangladesh, and in large parts of the country, there simply is not enough work to go around. So what that naturally does is create a high demand for any kind of work overseas. And also what it does is it actually creates a situation where there's a far bigger supply of labor than there is actually work available. So what it does automatically is put the prospective worker in a weak position to bargain or to challenge the kind of conditions that they might be facing. What that also means is that within their own country, before they've even journeyed overseas, in their own country, there are unscrupulous people that can prey on this desperation, charge large illegal fees to these people, and then basically sell those people on to employers in the destination country. You know? And quite frankly, there's a lot of money to be made by the people who are also from the same country by recruiting workers this way and sending them on. 
And those people typically will have a lot of influence over their governments. So you automatically have a huge impediment to reform there because there are actors in, you know, these poor countries that really love it. It's basically a very easy way to make money and it's based on exploiting these people. Now, the other thing is that the companies in the Gulf, for example, are effectively getting workers for free or heavily subsidized. And that's the best way to think about what the situation is. That even if a company does not itself necessarily actively want to exploit these workers, what they're getting is workers that are effectively subsidized. So they're very cheap. So when they do pay them, their wages are very depressed and the labor regime in the Gulf allows you to treat them as temporary and indisposable workers. In Depender's case, he was paid nothing for the job that he took during his first few months in Qatar. Eventually, his employer moved him from the construction site to work as a clerk at the office. When they started paying him, the salary was lower than what he'd been promised. They also didn't deliver on the promise of decent food and accommodation. At some point, he even had to live in a building that was still under construction. For two weeks, there was no electricity in my accommodation, you know. And we were forced to uh, sleep on the rooftop in the scorching heat, which was surrounded by cement factories. And when we wake up in the morning, we were like taking bath in the sand or cement dust. Everyone was scared, you know, to talk to the manager because uh, their passport was with the manager and uh, they didn't knew about the local language, that is Arabic language. And so I said that when there is no electricity, we don't have water to take shower. We are not getting a good sleep in the night because of no electricity and it's very hot. Despite this, there wasn't much Dependra or his co-workers could do to leave the job. I spoke to Robin Magalit Rodriguez to better understand the global trends that drive people like Dependra into situations of forced labor. She is a professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of California at Davis. We are seeing migrant labor increasingly being globalized, meaning you're seeing workers of particular nationalities working in even further flung countries than their countries of birth. And we're seeing that countries of destination or migrant importing countries are typically moving towards more temporary contractual forms of employment and kind of favoring migrants on a temporary basis. And that's including traditionally countries of destination that had had pathways for settlement and eventual naturalization and citizenship. So you see that trend, for instance, in places like the United States, which had touted itself as a country of immigrants, but really there has been a trend in an increase instead on the importation of short-term migrant workers. You see that also in Canada. You see that in Australia, certainly in Europe as well. So overall, we're seeing this move towards globalized workers, but globalized workers working on a temporary basis. So they're working as migrants. Robin explains that the migrant labor systems of today find their roots in colonial labor systems. It's not coincidental that many of the routes that current migrant workers take are the same sorts of routes 
that migrant workers were taking during the colonial period. In other words, you're seeing, for instance, people from countries that were colonized by the British, such as Indians, traveling some of the routes of the former British Empire, even today, working in places like Canada or the UK or even English-speaking Africa, formerly colonized kind of countries of Africa, for instance, or in the case of the Philippines, colonized formerly by the United States. For this reason, migrant workers are heavily concentrated in developed countries with a colonial history. Of the estimated 164 million migrant workers, nearly 70% were found in high-income countries. Migrant workers often leave their countries looking for better opportunities. Therefore, the fear of deportation is another factor that might lead to situations of forced labor. There's also just a tremendous amount of labor exploitation. The contracts that migrants have, because their contractual employment is what gives them legal status in a place like the United States, employers will use that as a way of disciplining workers into compliance because the alternative is if you don't comply with not just the contract, but comply with whatever I demand of you on the job. And if I were to terminate you, you basically fall out of legal status. You are rendered undocumented and then you are then subject to immigration enforcement and ultimately deportation. And then there's even more. On top of that, you may well be in tremendous debt to migrant brokers who help to facilitate your migration to begin with. Luckily, Depender was able to help some of his co-workers escape their situation. It was through Andrew Gardner, an American professor who was documenting labor conditions in the Emirates, Andrew asked Dipendra to help him with his research by gathering testimonies and pictures of the abuse that he and other workers experienced. Dipendra brought to Andrew's attention that some of the drivers of the company weren't being paid for their overtime. After they demanded their pay without avail, they decided to go on strike. They were suspended from the job uh, for six months. They didn't got a single penny for the six months. So me and few others were taking care of those people as well because they need to survive, you know, they need food. Andrew introduced Dependra to someone who helped him file a claim at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR. After Dependra testified, the drivers won the case and were paid their missing salary, as well as a ticket to go back to their countries of origin. It's because of the lack of accountability on the part of governments that organizations such as the UNHCR have to step in. Dipendra and his co-workers were lucky to have someone advocating for them. But those cases are rare. Today, there are very few international organizations like the UNHCR which provide assistance to migrant workers. There's also a need to underscore that the systemic issues with migrant labor often start in the countries of origin and that the international cooperation needed on this matter is lacking. The legal architecture and the political structures we have that are designed to protect people from harm, they don't really work transnationally. So that's a huge issue for us to look at. But one thing that we've tried to really work on 
is really targeting these transnational business enterprises and actors that are increasingly acting like they are government authorities to be playing much more of a role to at least within their value chain to respect basic human rights and to ensure anyone working in their value chain has their rights respected. So that, for example, if you're a major tech company, if you're a major construction company, you know, whatever it might be, with a very big value chain, you have a lot of a very large workforce, there's a high chance that are victims of exploitation trafficking in that value chain. And therefore, you should be doing what you can to really firstly identify the risks and then provide avenues for remedy for anyone that happens to be facing exploitation. And what recommendations do you have for companies in addressing these gaps? So companies bear a lot of responsibility for the exploitation of migrant workers in the Gulf. Of course, ultimately, it's the state that has the obligations under human rights um, treaties to respect the rights of migrant workers. They're the ones that draft the laws and they are the ones that regulate them. But even if you have a situation where the laws violate workers' rights, companies can do a lot to respect those rights. So that, for example, even if the laws require a worker to seek permission to leave the country to change jobs or they criminalise workers for running away, Companies do not have to themselves exercise those provisions of the law. They can set up grievance mechanism systems. They can allow workers to form and join committees where they can make representations about issues that they're facing. They can do due diligence to work out how work is being recruited. We'd say they should also themselves actively go to the places, the countries where workers come from, so they themselves monitor how workers are recruited, just as they would send off people to inspect the quality of products to make sure there's no poisons and toxins that might kill customers who might buy their product. In the same way, they should check how ethically our work is being sourced. After two years in a situation of forced labor, Dipendra was able to convince his superiors to get a permit to return to Nepal for a holiday. He was told that they would withhold three months of his salary until he came back to Qatar. Dipendra agreed and flew back to Nepal, knowing that he wouldn't go back, even if that meant losing money. However, Dipendra still had a loan to pay. After Nepal, he ended up going to the UAE, this time to work in better conditions. In 2013, he was invited to speak and share his story at a human rights conference in London. After Dipendra's talk, a woman offered to pay his $4,000 debt. She also insisted on giving him another $6,000 so that he could realize his dream of forming his own charity in Nepal. Now, Dependra runs Safety First, an organization that helps other Nepalese avoid falling prey to traffickers. Can you describe the experience then of going back home as a free man without debt? What was that like to get back home? I was a free man when I landed in Nepal, you know, the first thing I did was I kissed the land. It was like uh, I just uh, won a battle. I don't have words to say of those moments. Those were the most beautiful moments of my life. Those moments when I just landed in Nepal. Today, Dependra continues to talk openly about his experience, hoping that it will make a difference to someone else. Whenever I share my story, it makes me feel bad and at the same time it makes me feel a little light that uh, at least uh, someone is there to really hear my story and just 
so that my story can help others to uh, not to put uh, their life into risk and into that situation again. often associate forced labor with certain parts of the world. We hope that this episode reminded you that this is a global problem and takes place all around us, regardless of geography. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, learn more about how forced and migrant labor takes place in your own community or city. Second, find organizations advocating for fair wages and providing legal support to migrant workers. Support them with your donations and your voice. And third, use the education toolkit that we've prepared on our website. Host a teach-in or share it with your friends, colleagues, and communities. Knowledge is power, and you have the power to inspire real change. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, FindingHumanityPodcast.com. I invite you to please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed Finding Humanity, please share it and leave us a review. To learn more about topics in our podcast and other opportunities to engage with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. Associate Production, Policy and Research by Martina Vanat, Aisha Amin, and Carolina Mendica. Mixing, Editing, and Music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank Dependra Giri, Mustafa Qadri, and Robin Rodriguez. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.